It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Look now at verse 12. Paul says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Look in verse 29. Paul says to the church in Philippi, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Look in chapter 2 now, and verses 17 and 18 where Paul says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then he says in chapter three, verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And again, in chapter four, verse four, he says to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Lord, we thank you for this word of rejoicing in the Lord. Thank you for that suggestion there in verse four that we can do that always. And we just ask that you would teach us some things today by your spirit, from your word, that would help us to be Christians that rejoice, not just in good times, but in bad times, in times of pain and suffering and difficulty and distress, that our salvation that we have in you and just knowing you, Jesus, would be so much more beautiful and so much bigger than all those things that even in the worst moments of life, we'd have a profound and abiding joy. We need you to work that in us because it's right and biblical and it's possible by your spirit. Lord, I ask that you please anoint me to communicate what's on your heart for the church. Please, God, help me to, to speak in a way that is consistent with your word and glorifies your name. And I ask that you'd support my throat, Lord. Lately when I'm preaching, my throat is just, feels like it's just falling apart in there. So I just ask for help with that. And then I want to get in the way of what you want to say to your blood-bought bride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, the so-called American dream revolves around the idea of the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence, for example, we all know it. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in our age, oftentimes in our minds, we translate that right to the pursuit of happiness to mean that we have an essential right to always be comfortable and experience convenience. And a byproduct of this American ideal is the illusion, the suggestion that maybe we won't have to suffer in this lifetime. And the assumption that suffering is always and in every way a bad thing and to be avoided at all costs. And admittedly, with our affluence in our culture here, with our standard of living, with our availability of resources and our technological advancements, I'll admit that the possibility of not suffering seems to our society at times to be real. That possibility of not having to suffer seems at times to be tangible and an actual possibility. 
And to add to that, not just as Americans, but we as Christians, we, we, we on some level want our faith to do away with all of our problems and our pains and our drama. And yet the Bible describes suffering as an essential aspect of life and especially of the Christian life. And this is rooted and grounded in the cross that Christ himself suffered in our place on the cross to bring us life. And that for there to be any new life, there had to be this death. There had to be this sacrifice, this suffering that took place on the cross, that the cross precedes the crown, that the death precedes life, and that suffering precedes glory. So real is this truth in Christianity that suffering is essential to the faith that it would cause St. Augustine to say, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Jesus promised that in this world, we're gonna have trouble, John 16, 33. And Christ's basic call to follow him is in many ways a call to suffer. When he said in Matthew 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And the New Testament tells us in Peter that we ought not to be surprised when we suffer, when we encounter tremendous difficulties. And yet there is an American ideological opposition to anything that challenges our perceived right to happiness, comfort, and convenience that is deeply ingrained in us as a culture. I just read a tweet from President Obama this week where he said, each of us deserves the freedom to pursue our own version of happiness. And that may be true, but what the American dream would want to do is bifurcate suffering and happiness, polarize the two. The American dream would say that they, they can't exist together, pain and joy, that they're mutually exclusive to one another. But the Bible seems to suggest that they are inextricably linked to one another, pain and joy. It's clear from scripture that both suffering and joy are basic and necessary to the Christian faith. And because of who Christ is and what he has done for us, they do and can coexist. We can be in a place of tremendous pain and difficulty and have real deep, profound joy because of Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, suffering is hardly ever mentioned without there being also a mention of the accompanying blessings that take place through suffering. And most often the blessing that is mentioned is the blessing of joy. There's 18 times in the New Testament where joy and suffering are brought together. The Bible is clear that pain and joy can and ought to for the Christian coexist. And this is the critical concept in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing from a place of pain, from a place of difficulty. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's been there for four years. Prior to that, in his experience serving the Lord, he had been um, 
Beaten down with stones one time, beaten with rods five times, beaten with the lashes three times. He'd been in dangers from countrymen, in dangers from foreigners, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers. He had been shipwrecked. He'd spent a night and a day out in the deep. He had experienced tremendous difficulty prior to his house arrest. And yet he is exuding in this letter joy, a real profound, sincere, deep joy from a place of a lot of pain and difficulty. It's a critical concept in Philippians. But what's brewing then in our collective psyche and our thought processes and our emotions is this clash between American idealism, the American dream, and a biblical perspective, biblical thinking. There's this clash that's always brewing within us because the two in many ways are opposed to one another. What makes a process more difficult for us in America is the popularity of the false teaching and theology of the prosperity, prosperity gospel, which would say that God always wants us to be healthy and wealthy and that God wants our lives to be pretty and prosperous at all times. And which would say that suffering is a sign that there is some sort of deficiency in our faith or in our Christianity. But the Bible says that we ought to actually rejoice in our sufferings. Rome and James and Peter all say that. And the Bible says that suffering, get this, suffering can actually be a gift from God. That's what it says in Philippians 1.29. We already read it in the New American Standard. I want to read it to you from the New Living Translation because it's excellent. It says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. That verse says expressly that in some ways and sometimes it is a privilege to suffer. It is a gift from God, a gracious gift from God, literally in the Greek, in certain times and ways that we would suffer. If we really believe that God is good, foundational to Christian belief, and that God delights in us, foundational to the gospel belief. God delights in us because of who Christ is and what he's done for us and our position in him. God literally delights in us. If we really believe that he's good and he's a father and he delights in us, then we can begin to see that even the worst things in life might actually be a gift from him. John Wesley, who knew about theology and also suffering, said, one of the greatest evidences of God's love to those that love him is to send them afflictions with grace to bear them. That's radical. That is counterculture, counter-American, but that is Bible. And I, I, just, I just want to testify to the truth of that. I, I want to testify to what Philippians 1.29 says, that the worst things can actually be a gift because my wife and I have had the worst year of our life as our daughter has relapsed and is in her second round of battling cancer. But we're, we're able to say, because of the way we've experienced Christ in it and through it and the fruit that's come from it, we're, we're able to say that our daughter's cancer is a gift, that we have been given the privilege to suffer. I want to testify 
to my experience of scriptural truth that the worst things can actually be a gift of the kindness of God. So what we want to be able to say theologically is that something is wrong not when Christians find themselves suffering, but rather when Christians find themselves suffering and never experiencing the joy of the Lord in the midst of it. Think about it. What should define Christianity and Christians? What should define us in our faith? Different people would answer that differently, but I think we would all agree that we'd be on solid biblical ground if we said love, right? Love ought to define Christianity and Christians, and even non-Christians would say that. It ought to define us. Okay, we got that. I think we would be on equally as solid of ground scripturally if we were to say that joy ought to define Christianity and Christians. Do you know that in the Old Testament, there are over 23 Hebrew words for joy? The Old Testament so exudes joy, there's multitudinous words to describe joy. Did you know that there's about 81 occurrences in the Old Testament where there's calls to joy or decisions to be joyful or reports of rejoicing? Do you know that the announcement, the first announcement of the coming of Christ is described by the angels as good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And when the wise men saw the baby Jesus, Matthew says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Salvation that comes through Jesus is pictured repeatedly in the scripture as being something of tremendous joy. A description of the early church is that they would meet in their homes and eat with gladness and sincerity of heart. When salvation came to a certain city in Samaria, it says in Acts chapter 8, that there was much joy in that city. Joy is placed in the fruit of the Spirit right after love. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But joy is right after love. The scriptures command us in light of our salvation to rejoice. We're commanded to rejoice in Philippians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and James and in Peter. And the kingdom of God can be summed up at least in part as being about joy. Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we're on solid biblical ground if we want to say that joy ought to characterize Christianity and Christians. And we're on solid biblical ground if we say it ought to characterize us particularly and most potently in times of tremendous difficulty, disappointment, pain, and suffering. But we'll be honest. We don't always nail this, do we? We're not always doing super good in this area, just like in the area of love, right? We should be... characterized by love. We should be nailing that thing. You'll know them by their, we should be loving people. Man, I fall so short in that daily. I mean, every single day, I'm like, ah, if somebody looked at my life today and evaluated my Christianity, the main thing they would get was definitely not love. I blow it in that all the time. And same thing with joy. There's many days where I said, gosh, if somebody looked and evaluated my life and my Christianity today, they wouldn't come away saying, the dude's got joy, crazy Jesus joy. I just fail in that so much. And 
That one's kind of harder for us to deal with because love always demands this, this outward expression, whereas joy can, you know, often be an inward thing, mostly depending on your personality. And so we kind of deal with a little more guilt, I think, sometimes when we're not experiencing joy. But still we want to be able to say, because of who Christ and what he has done, who he is and what he's done, that something is wrong, not when the Christian finds his or herself suffering, but when rather they find themselves without the joy of the Lord ever in the midst of that. So the overwhelming attitude of the Bible regarding pain and suffering in the life of the Christian is positive. Okay? The overwhelming attitude is that this is actually a good thing. Don't misunderstand it. Not in a meritorious way. In other words, not in a way that earns us merit. We can make that mistake, and people have in the church throughout history think that if I suffer, if I experience pain, if I sacrifice, it's going to make God more happy with me. That's just not the gospel. It's not the Bible. That's not true. So the Bible speaks about pain and suffering in, in a positive way, but not in a meritorious way. We don't earn anything with God because of it. Nor is it in a masochistic way, right? It's not like as Christians, we're just looking for pain and suffering. Just, oh, yeah, hurt me. It's not, that's not the thing, right? We, we don't enjoy the actual pain and suffering. It's not meritorious. It's not masochistic, but it is mysterious, That is to say, it is rooted and grounded in the mystery of the cross. That somehow in the economy of God, for victory to come, there had to be a death. That for there to be life, there had to be that surrender. That for there to be glory, there had to be that pain and that suffering. And everything in Christianity comes through the lens and the paradigm and the process of the cross. And it is then... A paradox, something that doesn't make sense on the surface, that suffering can be, at times and ways, a privilege that actually yields, creates, brings forth joy in the life of the Christian. That's a paradox, that's counterintuitive, that ought not to work. It only works in the economy of God, not in the ideology of America. So true is this that when Paul was in a place of suffering, he was able to say in 2 Corinthians 12, it was when he had some bad physical ailment, right? He says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. But each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's just radical. Here's how this works. The way that this works is that God, in his sovereign power, has chosen in an act of decisive judgment of reversal on the brokenness of this world, which guarantees there will be pain and suffering, to bring forth joy from that very pain and suffering. The way that this works is that God and his sovereign power has chosen to bring forth joy from pain and suffering. And it's an act of decisive judgment and reversal 
on the rebellion of this world. And Christ stands as a preeminent model. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is communicating that there was a joy there in that situation of the cross. There, there was a joy that was greater than the suffering, greater than the pain, greater than the humiliation. And now that truth of the cross is extrapolated into the life of the Christian. We do realize that there is coming a day when there will be no more pain, when there will be no more suffering. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. There is coming that day, but it's not yet. Our understanding of the kingdom of God is that it is both present and future. It's already here. It's not yet fully fulfilled. So then, the immediate and present manifestation of the victory of the cross in the kingdom of God is not that suffering is done away with yet, but rather that suffering is redeemed now. God instills purpose into the suffering of his people. The, the expected results of our suffering are reversed by God. There's a different outcome than one would normally expect. Meaning is found and infused into our pain and our suffering by God in his kindness. And then this can be understood as the ultimate display or show of power on God's behalf. That God is able to take what the world and the devil mean for wickedness and bad and work it for good and for his glory. That is the ultimate display of power. It's a show of domination. Like, like have you ever been playing some sort of sport against somebody and they, they so dominated you that they took the strengths of your game and turned them against you? Happens to me every time I play tennis. The only place I'm any good is at the net and that's because my wingspan is the same width as the net. And so I'm just like, wah, 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 wah. But I, 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 am play, I play opponents often that are able to dominate me. They're like, okay, he's good at the net. He's at the net. Boink, over his head every time. Boink, over his head or psh, under his arm or bam, right in his face. And they, they just dominate me. They, they turn my own strengths against me and reverse the outcome. And that is what God in Christ is doing with the schemes of the enemy in the world. He is so dominant. He is so supreme. He is so much greater than that he takes the enemy's best and works it to his demise. What happens then is that God is glorified in pain and suffering. God is shown to be great through pain and suffering. And that, that's a, a counterintuitive outcome. It's not what we would expect. We think pain and suffering, God can't be great. He turns it around. And in our pain and suffering shows himself to be great and glorious. And in our weakness, his, strong, his strength is made most evident. So what we see throughout scripture is that God works his purposes through our pain and suffering. This is explicit in Romans 5 and in James 1. 
right? In James 1, we're told to rejoice in trials, right? Because the testing of our faith produces perseverance. It leads to maturity. And then in Romans chapter 5, it says, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations lead to perseverance, which leads to proven character, which leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So it says expressly there that God works his purposes through pain and suffering. And when we combine that with our strong belief that there's coming a day of reversal, that Jesus is coming again to right every wrong, then we're able to say strong things in the face of our pain in this lifetime. Things like Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4 where he said, our suffering, and he had gnarly suffering, Our suffering is light and temporary and is producing for us an eternal glory that is greater than anything we could imagine. Like he said in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So God accomplishes his purposes through pain and suffering. He reverses expected outcomes And he allows pain and suffering into our life to do two other things. Number one, to identify where we are at spiritually. And then number two, to develop us more deeply. Pain, difficulty, trials, suffering in our life will identify where we're at spiritually and then develop us more deeply. C.S. Lewis says about this, God allows us to experience the low points of life in order to teach us lessons that we could learn in no other way. Oswald Chambers said, if you're going through a time of discouragement, there's a time of great personal growth ahead. William Jenkins said, as the wicked are hurt by the best things, so the godly are bettered by the worst. And my favorite quote of these ones, John Calvin says, You must submit to supreme suffering in order to discover the completion of joy. I just want to testify for what it's worth. I found that to be true. And so because God works profoundly through pain and suffering, as well as through relief and deliverance, right, he does both, It's not always either one or the other. Sometimes God relieves the situation and delivers us from, right? And we're like, yeah, God. Other times it's through pain and suffering. And we're like, oh, God. Because God works through both, we need to have a theology or an understanding of both. As God's people, we need to have both a theology of victory and a theology of suffering. We need to have both a theology of power and a theology of pain. Ajith Fernando, who's the national director for Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, an incredible guy, read any of his books, they're great. He says, without an adequate theology regarding suffering, Christians avoid the cross and move away from their call. And they are also unnecessarily unhappy when they face pain. Okay, so so we need to have this understanding of what God does through suffering. Here's that theology. Here's a theology of suffering succinctly. That God permits pain and suffering 
in this present age in order to accomplish in us certain things for our joy and our good and for his glory that are consonant with the workings of the cross. Always goes back to the cross. Consonant, consistent with the experience of the cross. Again, God permits pain and suffering in this present age in order to accomplish in us certain things for our joy and our good and for his glory that are consonant with the workings of the cross. And as I mentioned in a previous introductory lesson on Philippians, who Christ is and what he has done is the bedrock upon which any possibility of true, deep, lasting joy is built. We're not talking about the hollow plea of the world that would say, just put on a happy face and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just grin and bear it. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about self-help. We're not talking about trying to muster it up. We're talking about because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that there is the real possibility of a deep, abiding, lasting, overwhelming, wonderful, beautiful joy. And that it only comes on the basis of Christ and the fact that through the cross, he has brought us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 what does the cross do? The cross brings us to God. What do we gain most in the cross? God himself. God and our gaining of him through being reconciled by Christ on the cross is the greatest gift. We have God. So this joy that we're talking about from knowing God is called a few different things in scripture. It's called in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. It's called in Psalm 16, the fullness of joy, which is found in God's presence. It's called in Psalm 51, the joy of God's salvation. And in Philippians, a couple times, it's called rejoicing in the Lord. So what is it exactly? This joy of our salvation, the fullness of joy, the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. What is it exactly? Listen to me very carefully. The joy of the Lord is a feeling, an experience. I don't want us to divorce our Christianity from feeling and experience. Feeling and experience are very important. Our Christianity is based on who God is. And let me tell you, God has feelings. God experiences things. God has emotions. Have you read the Bible? God has emotions. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we feel, we experience, we have emotive responses. The joy of the Lord. I, I don't want us to, to make our Christianity merely this, this intellectual thing or, or, or merely a set of propositional truths or this unfeeling cold thing. The joy of the Lord is a feeling, an experience. But it is a feeling and an experience that is based on certain truths. It is not merely a feeling. It is an authentic feeling enabled by, undergirded by, absolute Bible truth. Okay, there are certain truths that ought to trigger, enable, undergird the joy of the Lord in our lives. Truths like this one. The cross of Christ has brought us to God. That's a truth that we believe. So because of the cross of Christ, we have reconciled fulfillment. 
Reconcile fulfillment. We were once strangers, aliens, alienated, cut off from God. We've been reconciled. We were empty and wandering and wanting, but we've been fulfilled in God. Okay, those are truths. Secondly, in Christ, we have God's love, acceptance, and adoption. We are loved, adopted, and accepted by God in Christ. And this love, this adoption, this acceptance, these are greater than the rejection, the hatred, and the unkindness of the world. The love and the adoption and the acceptance of God are greater than the hatred, the rejection, and the unkindness of the world. A third truth, the spirit of Christ lives in us. The spirit of Christ lives in us. And what that does is it banishes ultimate loneliness and ultimate powerlessness. Christ is in us so that loneliness is dealt with. The spirit of God is in us so powerlessness is dealt with. A fourth truth, God works all things for our good, which is our being conformed to the image of Christ. So we can say that the worst things in life are truly and sincerely and ultimately redeemed because God will use them to work the image of Christ in us. A fifth truth, God in Christ is actually present in our lives to comfort us. We're not left hopeless in our misery. I, I just want to testify that that's true. That God is a God who opens up the door of hope in the valley of trouble. He's the one who is near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to us. Where is Christ when we're suffering? He's with us. Christ suffers with us. A final truth, God has made us co-heirs with Christ. Because we are in Christ, everything that Christ is an heir to, we are heirs to. Therefore, any lack in this life or any pain in this life does not compare with the pleasure and the privilege of our future in Christ. So what these truths do is they affect change in us. Behavioral, experiential, feeling, change. Okay, these truths, a truth can be called an indicative. An indicative is a statement of fact. This is important for an understanding of the Bible, okay? An indicative is a statement of fact, like you're sitting there. That's an indicative. Indicatives always undergird, lead to, support, create imperatives. An imperative is a command. Do this. You see, Christianity is never just a list of commands. Christianity is never just a list of obligations, rules, and regulations. It is a list of, it is the explanation and explication of beautiful truths, absolute facts, which then affect transformation in us. They change our perspective, our behavior, our feelings, our experience because we're reconciled to God in Christ, because the spirit of Christ is actually in us, because we're co-heirs of God with Christ. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In every situation, we are enabled to have joy because these indicatives, these truths, undergird and enable and birth these imperatives, these commands. 
These propositional truths enable, undergird, empower authentic feeling, true and deep joy. It's not trite Christian emotionalism. Okay, that would be shallow joy. It's not dependent on circumstances, right? That would be contingent joy. It's not like the world suggests, which would be forced joy. It has nothing to do with ourselves, self-joy. It has to do with the identity and the work of the eternal, all-powerful, never-changing God. It is Jesus' joy that is available to us. Now, having said that, I do need to say that having the joy of the Lord doesn't mean that we'll never be sad. And I'll pause for just a moment for an aside. We, we do have to face, and I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to reconcile it completely, but, but we do have to face it for some reason or another. We are the depressed culture and, and the depressed generation. The biggest segment of prescription drugs in America is antidepressants. The fastest growing segment of the antidepressant industry is preschoolers. I don't know why. I don't know what. I, we, we're misdiagnosing. We're, we're misseeing. We're, I, I don't know. But I do want to recognize that there are some of us sometimes, and this is very close to me and my life and my family, there are some of us sometimes who, who can't feel. Who no matter what circumstances there are, feel hopeless and without joy. And I want to identify and confess and, and say that I know there are legitimate chemical imbalances that happen in people, legitimate physiological, biological reasons why some people have this inability to feel or to feel anything good at times. I don't have the solution to that, but that's something we need to confront. But having the joy of the Lord does not mean that we will never grieve or be sad. Sadness is a valid human emotion. Sadness is a valid biblical emotion. Before we can truly rejoice in the midst of pain, we need to be able to express pain. We need to be able to sorrow, to grieve, to lament, as the Bible would say. There's about a hundred, there is, there's 150 Psalms in the Bible and almost 60 of them are laments, Psalms of lament, sorrowful, complaining, grumbling, sad Psalms. In fact, they outnumber the Psalms of rejoicing, the Psalms of lament. And what the laments are in the Bible are the passionate, sorrowful cries of the righteous who despite their faithfulness are going through great hardship. So we're not necessarily talking about the sin that you did and so the mess that you made. We're not going to call that suffering, really. That Jesus is present in that. He'll meet you there and he'll help you with that. But we're talking about other stuff. 
Okay, not the messes we made, but the messes of life. Jesus himself expressed sorrow, lamented, wept over Jerusalem. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Concerning his death and resurrection, he told his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world's gonna rejoice, but you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. He didn't say to his disciples, you're, you're gonna be Christians, you're never gonna grieve. He said, you will grieve, but your grief will be followed by joy because of who I am and what I've done. I will bring a redemptive quality to the sorrows of this world. And so lamenting, weeping, sorrow precedes joy. And I I just want to testify. I just want to testify that that biblical truth has worked out in my life when Daisy relapsed with cancer second time around. Man, it was really hard to find joy. First time around was a lot easier. Second time, Kate and I, and Daisy, and Isaiah, whole family had some real times of discouragement, sadness, sorrow, weeping, lamenting for an extended period of time. And with those that I would counsel with, trusted friends and pastors in my life, I'd say, man, I, I can't find the joy. I, I had it. I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't find it but it came as I lamented and took my weeping to the Lord and expressed pain. Joy came. It didn't come because she's free from cancer. She's not. My daughter very well may die. It didn't come because things got better. They haven't. It came because of Jesus, because of who Christ is and his willingness to meet me in my brokenness and in my pain and in my suffering, and not to just fix it, but to walk me through it, and in so doing, to take me to a deeper place of love with him, a deeper understanding, a new enjoyment of him. So what lamenting and grieving done properly do is they take us to God in that search for comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 calls God the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. God meets us in a unique way in pain. Charles Spurgeon agreed and said, as ever as God has put his children in the furnace, he will be in the furnace with them. He ministers to us in the most profound way in our hurting. And that ultimately deepens the love affair with him. J.H. Jowett said, our fellowship with his sorrows makes us receptive of his joys. And the joy of the Lord grows best in the soil I found of emptiness, brokenness, pain, and suffering. And then what proper lamenting also does beside lead us to God and lead us into comfort in him is it actually protects us, the Christian, from emotional and spiritual harm. Uh, Again, A.G. Fernando says, by opening ourselves up to God's comfort, we also open ourselves to healing from bitterness. We are bitter when we think of an event in purely negative terms. 
But if God has comforted us, even though the memory of the event is still painful, the bitterness will be gone because we have experienced a love that is greater than the harm done to us. And having experienced God's comfort, we are also able to face people, even people who have hurt us, with God's grace, which is greater than all the sin. So there's a place for lamenting and sorrow. God works through that. The ultimate goal is to birth joy out of that. What will keep us from experiencing this truth-fueled joy? A couple things. One, it's too much attention given to the lies. Those things that are contrary to what the Bible states about our position in Christ, our being loved by Christ, accepted by God, adored by God, adopted by God, Christ's spirit in us, co-heirs with him. Too much time given to lies. Too much attention given to the message of culture and not the message of Christ. This is why it is imperative. It is necessary if we are going to experience the joy of the Lord, which ought to to some degree characterize us as Christians, we must be in the Bible. We must immerse ourselves in the truth. We are bombarded with the lies. We must immerse ourselves in the truth. Too much attention given to the lies, not enough time in the truth will keep you from experiencing the joy of the Lord. Secondly, what will keep you from experiencing the joy of the Lord is failure to surrender. Failure to surrender. When you hold on to things in this life too tightly, even really good things, anything that you're holding on too tightly, God is gonna deal with. God will deal with you on that issue because we're only supposed to hang on to Jesus like this. Only Jesus like that. My testimony is when I finally surrendered my daughter and came to the place where I was okay with Daisy dying, I found the joy. Even my own child, I had to surrender and not hold on so tightly. Anything you're holding on to too tightly in this world is gonna keep you from experiencing the joy of the Lord. And thirdly, a desire for satisfaction over joy. Let me explain that one. We have this desire for satisfaction over or in lieu of joy. I mean satisfaction like this, like we want to do something to make the situation better right now. Immediate satisfaction. Give me something to make the situation better right now. We pursue this daily, often, frequently. Different situations make us act out differently with regards to wanting satisfaction. Sometimes we can get it. Sometimes we can't get no satisfaction. Think about this. If Paul were consumed with wanting satisfaction in his context, in his circumstances, then he would have just been consumed with just wanting to get out from house arrest. That would, all of his efforts and thoughts would have been, I just got to get out from underneath this Roman guard. And he would have missed, been deprived of the joy of the Lord. He would have been too consumed with immediate satisfaction. And he would have missed the deeper, greater, more profound, transformative, world-changing joy. You see, we get caught up in that satisfaction. Got, got, Got to take care of this thing right now. And we do that because we too easily depend on things going well in our life to experience joy. And when they don't, and even sometimes for no apparent reason, we feel empty and miserable. And so because we don't feel good when things go wrong, we are compulsively drawn to whatever will provide us a moment of satisfaction, a moment of pleasure, 
a make it better now thing. And we end up exchanging or giving up joy for satisfaction and mere moments of pleasure. Addiction is perhaps the clearest example of this. For an addict, even though we know that that drug or that drink or that pornographic image or that gamble or that conquest, even though we know that that thing is going to deprive us of true and deep joy, as well as those that we love, we do it again, we go after it repeatedly because we need the moment of satisfaction. We need the momentary pleasure. And, and we have this challenge, this difficulty that we like pleasure and immediate satisfaction more than joy because we sacrifice joy all the time for the immediate shallow kick. And it robs us of our joy. Even in more innocuous situations, we have this tendency to seek simple or extravagant pleasures in lieu of true joy. We find ourselves pleasure-seeking, right? Okay, this pleasure, okay, now I'm gonna try this pleasure and go here, and okay, let's get this. And and then we find ourselves not only pleasure-seeking, but circumstance-guarding. Okay, if I could just find enough pleasure frequently enough, I I think I'll be okay. And if I could just circumstance guard my life enough so that I don't get into these bad situations, if I just put up these walls and I keep that out and I don't let that happen and I plan and I save. And what pleasure seeking and circumstance guarding becomes are controlling factors in our life. The search for pleasure and and the need to control the circumstance becomes a controlling factor, a driving idol, an enslaving component of our lives. And that robs us of our joy. But But when the joy of the Lord comes in, this deeper, richer, internal sort of joy, it actually provides then the greatest help against temptation because we found an affection that causes us to just want to get away from and be done with those other things that we give too much affection to. This is what the Puritan Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. I found a new affection, Jesus. Love him more than anything I could ever have imagined. And that has an expulsive power in my life of false affections, wrong affections, incorrect affections. A.G. Fernando says, without the joy of the Lord, all pleasure has a hollow ring to it. It leaves you a short time after the experience is over. Man, we know that's true. That was so true of my life with surfing. Surfing for me was an idol for so long. Every wave, I, if I got it, even if I got the best wave that was there that day, I needed to get another one and another one and another one and travel around the world and had to be better and more and bigger. And it was driving me. It was a controlling factor in my life, getting that pleasure, that thing. I want to say that the pleasures of life don't have to be contrary to the joy of the Lord. It's not that you either have to have the joy of the Lord or enjoy the things of the world. That's not the case. God has given us certain pleasures in this life that are to be enjoyed. And it doesn't have to be separate from the joy of the Lord. The challenge is that we often substitute pleasure for joy. In the absence of the joy of the Lord, we settle for mere pleasure. 
and it never satisfies. But we end up settling. And what we find is that we are too easily satisfied then. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. But, but when we get the joy of the Lord, when we make Jesus our supreme treasure, then we are released to more truly enjoy the pleasures of the world. When we're totally satisfied in Christ and our identity is secure in him, now we're released to more truly and more fully enjoy the pleasures of the world because instead of owning us in our need for them, we are freed from them because Christ is supreme. Now we can enjoy them in a more full way. They actually bring us more pleasure, not less pleasure. Because we have the joy of the Lord and all we need in Christ, we can more fully enjoy different things. We can delight in things more fully when we need them less. It's the same in relationships. You find your identity and your security and your love in Christ. You can enjoy and love people more and need them less. And that's full-on freedom. If we do not have the joy of the Lord as part of our everyday lives, then we depend too much on those bursts of pleasure for fulfillment. And they're shallow. They will always leave us empty. They will always fail us. But the joy of the Lord, which is present even in pain, will keep us content in every situation. We want to and ought to be able to say, as was said in Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there should be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And that is the possibility of life in Christ. And my prayer is that we would learn to suffer well by embracing what Christ is doing, surrendering everything else, grieving correctly, allowing the process, and clinging to Jesus. And that would be transformative in our lives, our church, our city, and the world to the glory of God. Lord, we thank you for this great possibility in you. We ask for the grace to see these things working in our lives. We ask the Holy Spirit, you'd come and work this in us and through us. Jesus, we say together, we believe the propositional truth that you are the supreme treasure of all the universe. We ask that that would work out experientially in our lives for your glory, for our good, for our joy. Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation, Lord. If you need help today, prayer team is up here. They love you. They'll do anything for you. Carpets, communion are here. Let's press into the Lord.